It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Good morning, everyone. Unfamiliar with HEDIS, the Healthcare Effectiveness Data and Information Set? Well, to explain what HEDIS is and how to avoid payer abrasion will be our special guest, Greg Forty, standing by. We're receiving more complaints about Medicare Advantage plans, and once again, Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer will be following up with a report. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. And speaking of risky business, Michael Callahan will join the broadcast to explain why providers continue to have problems with implantable device reporting. And Monitor Money Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Money Listener Survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hurst, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all, and a special welcome to my special listener, Betsy. Um, you know, last week was quite the week. Um, maybe the three-day government shutdown slowed things down a bit, and for a while, I thought I had nothing to talk about. Well, my lack of a new topic vanished at noon on Friday when the Department of Health and Human Services released their 37-page report entitled, 2017, A Year of Accomplishment. Now, before you rush to the Q&A box and ask if they included Tom Price's accomplishment of the most use of private jets by any HHS administrator, the answer is no. But they did use alternate facts to support one of their supposed accomplishments. So what got my fur to stand on end? Well, they claimed as an accomplishment the following. CMS removed procedures from the inpatient-only list in the outpatient prospective payment system rule, giving patients greater choice to decide which site of service is right for them for six procedures, including total knee replacements, one of the most common and costly procedures. Medicare beneficiaries will now have the option to seek care in a lower-cost setting of care, i.e. outpatient setting, rather than a more expensive inpatient setting. Are they wrong? Absolutely. First of all, patients never have a choice whether they're inpatient or outpatient. Now, we all know that doctors have to follow the rules no matter what the patient decides. Now, I will admit that CMS did say that doctors can consider patient preferences when determining the status for total knee replacement, but they provided absolutely no details on how much weight we're allowed to give to patient preference or whether that preference needs to be rational. They also state that total knee replacement is one of the most costly procedures. Perhaps they're unaware that CMS has a list of prices of procedures available to the public, and from that list, they could see that there are 185 procedures that are equally or more expensive for outpatients. Now, I will agree that a knee replacement is a bit more expensive than the last item on the list, which is a half milligram dose of diclofenac, which costs 19 cents. But knee replacement is a heck of a lot less costly than a prosthetic retina at $122,000. And finally, they claim that the inpatient setting is more expensive than outpatient. Oh, really? The outpatient copayment for that surgery is exactly the same as the inpatient deductible. 
And maybe they should talk to AARP and NBC News that they continuously encourage patients to insist on inpatient admission because it's less costly. They also must have a bit of amnesia about the fact that self-administered medications are not covered as outpatients, but are covered as inpatient. And that can add a couple of hundred dollars of outpatient costs to an outpatient surgery. They also seem to have forgotten the three-day bundling rule for inpatient admissions. And they conveniently seem to have forgotten that if a patient had a part A stay within the last 60 days, that total knee replacement will cost them absolutely nothing. Oh well, as we've learned this year, facts are terribly overrated. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And Dr. Hirsch, it sounds like it's time to um, resurrect your Powtoons video about NBC News telling patients all they need to do is request inpatient status. Well, on to the therapy cap, and I'm going to be reporting on this till we have a resolution. Uh, now we know that the government... Open for business, House and Senate had previously agreed on a continuing resolution to continue operations through February 8th, coming up, where we start all over again, kind of thinking of Groundhog Day as we pass over it. Are you humming? I got you, babe. I certainly am. So what do we know now, or better put, what do we not know about the therapy cap? Friday afternoon appears to be the day that CMS updates therapy providers via their Spotlight webpage, which seems odd in that therapy providers would never know why or how to access that page because therapy providers traditionally bookmark the CMS therapy page, the CMS therapy cap page, as well as the CMS GMO settlement page. Would it have been so hard for CMS to post critical notice on claim submission and the therapy cap to the therapy webpages? I'm beginning to sound like Dr. Hirsch in my segment now. But during an APTA call last week, listeners were updated on the significant effort that the Therapy Cap Coalition has been expending. And as of right now, we heard the message that um, CMS is going to be moving to a rolling hold on claim submissions with the KX modifier. Please do not pay uh, attention to your MAC updates because they might not be consistent with the CMS updates. And uh, they're a little bit late. Um, I listened to an Iridian webinar last week where some conflicting information was given. So please, my article will be coming out tomorrow morning. Take the link in there, go to the CMS Spotlight page, and see what the update is. My most important takeaway is CMS is acting as if any resolution will be retroactive to January 1st, therefore wiping out retroactively any presumed hospital exception. So with that in mind, let's bring up our poll and quickly move through that. You heard Dr. Hirsch talk about total knee replacement, and it is a hot topic out there on every list serve uh, for physicians and for therapists. So with total knee replacement no longer on the IPO, how is the transition going at your facility? Smooth, no concerns. Two, still ironing out the kinks. Three, you're off to a rocky start. Four, you're confused. And, of course, you can always check other. Let us know in the chat box or it's not applicable to you. Chuck will be back later in the program with our results. 
Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Michael Callahan, David Glazer, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest, Greg Porter with MRO. This is Monday. It's January the 29th, 2018, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. One would think that after five years of intense scrutiny by the Office of Inspector General, hospitals, health systems, and ambulatory surgery centers would have mastered the subject of implantable medical device reporting. Not so. Under the auditing microscope of federal fraud and abuse authorities, you would think implantable medical device reporting would be, well, routine. But it's not. That's about to change, thanks to an upcoming webcast by healthcare expert Michael Callahan. He will walk you through all the traps that can snare your facility or ambulatory surgery center when reporting device credits. Join us tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern for this exclusive live Rack Monitor webcast, Implantable Device Credit Reporting. To register to attend, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Just as it's hunting season in many parts of the country, it's heatest reporting season for hospitals and health systems across America. Greg Ford with MRO is standing by to report on HEDIS. Also, Michael Callahan is standing by with a preview of his important webcast that's coming your way tomorrow. He'll join us later in the broadcast. Now we're going to check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business. David, what's risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. Last week, I addressed a fallacy that medical decision-making control the level of code for an established patient visit. This prompted a question from one of our listeners, Arlene, who sent Dr. Hirsch and I a policy issued by Highmark in Pennsylvania. Now, first, Dr. Hirsch and I both appreciate hearing about crazy policies adopted by the payers. And crazy may be an understatement for this one. It's so misguided that Dr. Hirsch and I both wondered whether there was a misunderstanding or maybe Arlene was confusing Groundhog Day with April Fool's Day and yanking our chain. But nope, Arlene is spot on on this. It's Highmark that's messing with us. The policy requires physicians to use medical decision-making as one of the key components for every service. This is entirely inconsistent with the E&M guidelines and with Medicare policy. Highmark is applying this policy to its private pay patients. Can it? The answer depends on two key facts. First, do you have a contract with Highmark? If you don't have a contract, Highmark can't shove this baloney down your throat. Absent a contract, an insurer cannot require you to comply with with a term that's completely contrary to industry norms. If you do have a contract, the question is whether the contract permits the insurer to adopt a new policy and what notice it must give you. Typically, insurance contracts give the plan wide latitude, in which case you're likely out of luck. This highlights the need to understand the insurer's contracts and policies, including your ability to terminate a contract or object to a new policy, and if you object to the new policy, having a new policy not take effect. Now, on to something completely different and unrelated. I want to invite you to celebrate Valentine's Day with me and my colleague, Katie Ilton. Um, It's more innocent than that. My law firm, Fredrickson & Byron, has a webinar called Love Letters to and from CMS, discussing how to respond to overpayment letters and make voluntary refunds. For details, see if you have an email last Wednesday, 
that has tools for avoiding risky business in the subject line. If you don't, shoot me an email. Now, in totally other news, you may recall that last October, we broke a story that the Department of Justice had adopted a policy of dismissing Meritless False Claims Act cases. In other words, if the government reviews the case and decides that there's no merit to it, it will intervene to dismiss. Last week, the Department of Justice issued a memo detailing this policy in writing. Thanks to Kogan Schneier at the National Law Journal, who has the scoop on the new policy and sent it to me for review. The, law, uh, the policy instructs the United States Attorney to look at every investigation to determine whether the False Act claim the False Claims Act case has merit, and actually ask the judge to dismiss it if it doesn't. I have to say I hope that this policy results in less work for me. It would be great for society if Meritless False Claims Act cases are quickly dismissed. You can see that policy in the Handouts tab. So let's end with our song for the week. I'm a big Howard Jones fan, and I think this policy is evidence that a thousand skeptic hands won't keep us from the things we plan. Things can only get better. I want to end by thanking the Department of Justice for coming out with this policy. It's really, it's a good thing to get rid of meritless cases. So Chuck, happy Groundhog's Day, Eve, 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 and back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was Health Care Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature is currently 3 degrees with a high of 14 expected a day. Here's a question we seem to ask every year about the same time. The question is, why do hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers continue to have problems reporting implantable device credits? Well, to shed light on this dilemma, here is senior healthcare consultant Michael Callahan. Good morning, Michael. Welcome back. Good morning, and thank you, Chuck. Well, as you hinted, problems do continue, compounded by aggressive auditing activity in the implantable medical device credit reporting space, which has been steadily and pervasively ongoing now for quite a few years, mainly carried out by the OIG, based in part on their annual work plans from various years right through to 2018, which continues to cost hospitals and surgery centers lots of money in repayments, fines, and lost revenues. Now, the lost revenues aspect being germane to errors uncovered by audit, then recouped by or repaid to the MAC, and then the inability by the facility to rebuild afterwards correctly, simply because timely filing uh, filing has uh, expired. Most hospitals and surgery centers, and here we're talking about our staple triad of inpatient, outpatient, and ASCs, often receive device warranty credits for replacement devices, as well as in clinical trials and research for free original or initially placed devices. So with this policy, we're currently dealing with both replacement and original devices. Across the clinical spectrum in terms of the types of procedures performed by hospitals and ASCs, Myriad devices are touched by this policy. For instance, in ortho, we have joint replacement procedures and those related device components, such as for total knee, which was talked about this morning, and total hip. In ophthalmology, certain IOLs. In neurootolaryngology, we have cochlear implants and many more under neurosurgery. And of course, in cardiovascular, we have the ubiquitous 
pacemakers and ICDs in all their various components, including leads and generators. Knowing which devices get reported when receiving credits as well as knowing how to report those credits then becomes critical to intelligently managing and staying compliant with these CMS provisions. When reporting device credit, CMS has strict directives to follow uh, requiring value codes, condition codes, and in some cases device credit modifiers, all geared toward offsetting the federal payment to reconcile it with the amount of credit received, common sense, which would all seem to be a very straightforward process from a casual read through the guidelines. However, as one OIG auditor famously put it to me several years ago, has repeated quite often since then, there's basically no facility we step into that doesn't continue to have these types of reporting errors. And of course, a good witness to this fact can be found when reviewing the bevy of published OIG reports that address device credit mistakes. And personally speaking, from my own national consulting projects uh, involving device credits, which I deal with almost every day. So in my webinar, I do disaggregate the inpatient, outpatient, and ASC scenarios for correctly reporting these credits. And it's one of those things that, as I repeat often, takes a village because it touches on a lot of various departments and really cannot be left up to just one or two assigned staff, you know, your favorite billers with that, those tenacious personalities and, and uh, carrying out their duties. No, this requires protocols that everyone must know and follow that are really spread across your entire facility, whether hospital or ASC, and that must be put into routine practice. Because facilities and surgery centers can be organized so differently, leveraging many disparate operational approaches, I cover from a high-level perspective the best way to craft and organize some PMPs and discuss broad-spectrum practices that can be uh, refined to your own unique needs. So I'm hoping that everyone can join me tomorrow, Getting It Right in 2018 in Plantable Medical Device Credit Reporting, 1.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I promise it's going to be a webinar filled with information. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Michael, very much. That was the Vice President of Hospital and Physician Compliance for Healthcare Consulting Solutions. And a reminder, there's still time to register to attend Michael's very important webcast. It's tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned that it's HEDIS season, and the season will continue through mid-May to help everyone understand about HEDIS which is a healthcare effectiveness data and information set. We asked Greg Ford from MRO to do some explaining for us. Greg, explain for us what HEDIS is all about. There are three major types of payer record reviews that are conducted every year. The healthcare effectiveness data and information set, known as HEDIS, Medicare risk adjustment, and commercial risk adjustment. HEDIS is the smallest of the three major payer review types, but it hit them with the hind and increased from 2% to 3% of the total medical record requests processed nationally here at MRO from 2016 to 2017, which is significant considering our total volume. HEDIS reviews are performed by payers and health plans to measure the quality and effectiveness of care delivered to their covered patient populations and are conducted every year from January to mid-May. Payers participate in HEDIS reviews to improve their Medicare Advantage plan quality measurements called STAR ratings. The STAR rating system was developed by CMS to rate health plan performance for Medicare Advantage programs and for Medicare risk adjustment initiatives. HEDIS review measures are one component of the STAR ratings program, customer satisfaction, operational performance, and the pharmacy measures also contribute to a payer's overall STAR ranking. 
The star ratings reported by the NCQA are derived from these reviews. NCQA is short for the National Committee for Quality Assurance. CMS star ratings are published annually on the CMS website to inform patients and the entire healthcare industry about plan performance. Star ratings give hospitals and health systems a view on each plan's effectiveness and quality. This information becomes increasingly valuable to providers during payer contract negotiations. Plans that perform well ask for higher rates during contract review cycles, while those that underperform are contracted at lower rates. You can see why HEDIS review season is important to the health plans. Here at MRO, we expect a dramatic increase in review requests for 2018, especially as payers improve efforts to implement best practices and processes for quality reporting. As the volume of payer and health plan reviews continue to climb, millions of patient records are requested each year, resulting in additional staff burdens and operational costs for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. These burdens often cause abrasion in the payer-provider relationship. The best way to minimize payer conflicts during the HEDIS review season is through proactive communication. I'd like to share four best practices to consider for the 2018 season and beyond. Number one, build stronger relationships with payers and health plans to better manage the surge in medical release of information. Number two, ask your ROI vendor to work directly with the health plans to coordinate disclosure management instead of using internal staff or engaging a third party. Number three, to offset the cost burden associated with producing these high-volume requests for records, ask the health plans to compensate for the records provided. It is commonplace for health plans to pay for HEDIS requests, and the price per chart usually ranges from $25 to $50 per patient record. Number four, consider electronic transfer of patient information and data with payers whenever possible to further reduce expenses and expedite the HEDIS process. In closing, when providers are able to timely produce HEDIS requests back to the health plans, they are working to strengthen the payer-provider relationship. The takeaway is a proactive strategy benefits all parties involved while re also reducing operational costs, eliminating redundancies, and easing workloads to comply with HEDIS review season timelines. Go Eagles this Sunday. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Greg, very much. That was Greg Port. Greg is the Director of Requester Relations and Receivables from MRO, and we thank you very much. Now is the time for the results of our Monitor Monday listing survey, and once again, here is Nancy Beckley. Chuck, while we're getting our poll pulled up here, I just have to say that every day is a good day to say, Go Pack Go! Well, Chuck, come on. You're supposed to laugh. I know you like the Packers. Yeah, I know. I'm laughing. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. So let's talk about total knee replacements, a big subject out there and lots of confusion. First of all, our listeners this morning, 40% of them say they're still ironing out the kinks at their facility. 6% of our listeners are having a smooth transition. And 12% are off to a rocky start with 8% confused. We have a lot of listeners, of course, 25% who say it's not applicable because they're not involved in uh, total knees. But I want to comment before I turn it back to you, Chuck. We have Sandra telling us regarding the poll, the hospital was prepared, but they're getting a lot of pushback from physicians. That should interest Dr. Hirsch on that one. And Mary is telling us that when she uh, replied other, it means that their orthosurgeons and their PAs have been apprised of the need 
for more complete documentation regarding the expected length of stay, but they're seeing no new words appearing in the notes yet. So we have some fodder to keep moving on this, Dr. Hirsch. Chuck? David, let's take a look at some of the questions we've been receiving. Thanks, Chuck. So first, Dr. Hirsch, if people want to get information about the uh, HHS accomplishments, where can they do that? Actually, the actual memo is in the handout tab along with your Department of Justice memo. I'd urge everybody to see if they can find any alternative facts in there. And if they do, write it up, send it to Chuck, and maybe he'll publish it for us. Paul, we've got sort of a comment of sorts. Maybe it's it's that you, you want to reply to. So Helen says, hey, some Medicare Advantage plans also have managed Medicaid as well and are doing the same, and specifically mentioned Humana, Amerigroup and the like. Any thoughts you want to share? One thing I can state is that uh, if if managed insurance of any type is beginning DRG reviews, uh, in this particular case, Medicare is crossing the Medicaid, it doesn't surprise me that uh, both governmental payers that have uh, some type of uh, advantage plans are doing the exact same thing. And I would uh, uh, urge all listeners, uh, if they are experiencing a heavy volume, uh, by all means, reach out, drop uh, Chuck or myself an email, and let me know what you're seeing. I'll turn it to you, Nancy. Sheila wants to know where they can get instructions on finding your report. Well, if you're a, on the email list for Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday, it'll come out tomorrow, and Chuck can clarify on that. Always you can go to rackmonitor.com, and the article will be there. It's going to be run as a feature article, so it should be on the front page tomorrow. Correct, Chuck? Nancy, uh, that story along with Dr. Hirsch's story and David Glazer's story, three great stories are all going to be in our Thursday edition of the Rack Monitor E-News. Okay. Great stories, everybody, too. Chuck, I think we'll toss it back to you at this point. Thanks very much. Uh, That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Money, and I thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Michael Callahan, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest, Greg Ford from MRO. And we thank you very much for being with us this morning. And be with us next Monday when Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach joins us to talk about potential security risks associated with Apple's iPhone new medical record portal. Plus, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, and J. Paul Spencer all bringing you the latest regulatory and audit news. Till then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.